tonight to the book of Judges. My, it's been a long, long time since we've, uh, since we've looked into this book, the book of Judges. All around the world you'll find galleries devoted to the display of art. That doesn't really impress me all that much. I'm probably one of the few people in the world that uh, being right there at the Louvre in Paris and uh, with an invitation to go into, uh, into the Louvre, I said, not interested. Uh, so, uh, I, I enjoyed actually the train ride going across the countryside of France much more than I would the Louvre. I'm just... I'm sorry if that offends you. I'm just more impressed uh, with God's handiwork out in nature than I am with uh, a painting that that man has done. Uh, But anyway, uh, a lot of people, they they enjoy that, and that's all right. That's their business. But uh, there are galleries all over the world of different sorts as they they collect and, and display certain things. Well, I'm glad that God's given us something a lot better than that. When we turn to the pages of of His Word, we find that He has preserved for us and presented to us word pictures of the greatest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And so, beginning tonight, we're going to we're going to take a trip through Gideon's gallery and just examine briefly his life over the next few weeks. And uh, it's a story of a coward who become a champion. And so that's always inspirational, but it's informative in another sense because the coward who became a champion later became a compromiser. And so we see the good and the bad and the ugly all in this story. And that's the way God is. He just paints the picture warts and all. In other words, He doesn't try to hide the faults of uh, of the heroes in the Bible. He tells it like it is. The fact of the matter is more space is devoted to Gideon than to any of the other judges in this book, and that ought to get our attention. It shows us what God can do with, uh, with an imperfect man if we're willing to obey his word. And so this is a story that gives hope to the hopeless, but it also gives a warning to the wayward. Uh, when we talk about the book of Judges, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those books that a lot of people are not very familiar with, and uh, they don't really think of it as being all that important. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the book of Judges covers more than one-third of the history of Israel from the time of the Exodus to the end of the Old Testament. So think about that. That vast period of time that's somewhere between 340 and 412 years, something like that, uh, of the the history of the nation of Israel. So we're not talking about just a little brief segment out of their history. We're talking about a large portion of it. It takes us all the way from the death of Joshua all the way up to the time of Samuel. And so 
Uh, in fact, Samuel is the man that most people consider to be the author of this book, the man that God used, and there's no actually uh, no internal evidence of that being the case, but uh, the Bible scholars down through the centuries have declared that he was the author of this book. Now, when we think of judges, we normally think of somebody that provides in a court, somebody that decides legal issues. But the judges mentioned here are much different than that. We do better to think of them as being heroic leaders of the people. Uh, they, they were men who directed and delivered the Jews from oppression. There was no standing office. By that, I mean, uh, you know, one judge didn't pass away and another one stepped on the scene in the sense that the office passed from one person uh, uh, to another. Uh, God raised these people up as they were needed. You know, we think about as, as a king, the succession of kings and uh And here in America, of course, we think about having elections where we elect our leaders, but that's not the case here. These were not the people's choice necessarily. These were people that God raised up, and we might think of them as emergency-type people. Think of them as being rescuers of the nation. God's ideal form of government is a theocracy. Whenever, whenever we think about a uh, monarchy, we're talking about a king, somebody that rules, you know, over the, over the kingdom. And we talk about a democracy, we're talking about, you know, the decision of the people as we vote and the majority decides what we're going to do. But in a theocracy, uh, God is the king. God is the one that rules overall. Now, that's the ideal form of government. That was the original intent of God for these people. And, of course, we all know the story how that they decided that they wanted to be like the other nations. And later on, you know, they said, uh, said give us a king. And, well, they got what they wanted, and that was Saul. And it uh, didn't turn out very good. never turns out very good whenever we insist on having our way, and it's contrary to God's way. They would have been much better off to have simply said, you know, we'll follow whatever, uh, what, whatever you tell us to do. You give us the directions, we'll follow that. But that wasn't the way that it worked out. And so ultimately, ultimately, Israel, who was intended to be a testimony as to God's greatness and God's goodness, they turned out to be a stumbling block or a barrier to God's purpose in this world. So tonight we're going to just, uh, we're going to pick up here in chapter number six because our focus is on basically on one man and the way that God used Gideon. And tonight the subject has to do with Gideon's fearful call. Now I, I want you to notice that this call came at a time of national oppression and we read about it in the first six verses. And I want you to notice the sin that caused this oppression. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. So they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The prevailing characteristic of that day 
is found in chapter number 21 and verse number 25 where it says, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, you can well imagine what happens to a society whenever the majority of the people decides to live that way. We're not going to listen to anyone. We're not going to follow anyone. We're certainly not going to listen to God and have those shackles upon us. We're going to do whatever we determine is right to our own way of thinking. And that's what happened here. And you know that there's going to be trouble when that happens. When you examine the history of Israel as a whole, especially during this this section known as the Judges, there was a fourfold cycle that repeated itself over and over and over again. First of all, it started with sin. Their association with pagan nations led to apostasy and idolatry. Their hearts were turned from the true and the living God to the false God. So there was sin. And then there was sorrow because God sent judgment upon them. That brought tears to their eyes. Uh, there was an oppression as God would allow other nations to, uh, to conquer them, control them, and make life difficult for them. And then there was supplication where Israel became concern out of their pain and they began to cry out to God and that led to their salvation or their deliverance. And so over and over again, we find this same fourfold cycle. There was sin, there was sorrow, there was supplication, and then the salvation as God would raise up one of the judges to deliver them from the oppression. The root cause of all of this, of course, is sin. But, but you know, you, you, you would think, like somebody said, the only thing we learn from history is that we never learn from history. And, and that's about right. They certainly didn't. You know, you would have thought after two or three times, they, you know, they would have come to their senses and decided, you know, maybe, maybe God has a better idea. Maybe God's way is best. Maybe we ought to follow Him. But just like we've done here in America, you see, we reap all of the benefits of our obedience to God and then turn around and deny Him, disobey Him, and trample underfoot his laws. Now, notice the source of this oppression. It tells us here in verse number 1 that it came to the hand of the Midianites. Now, verse 2, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them uh, the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel uh, had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. So God is using these other people, these wicked people, these sinful people, to oppress his own people. The Midianites were a wandering tribe of people that traveled across the land. The very word Midian means strife. And as they traveled across the land, they basically took whatever they wanted. Somebody got in their way, they trampled them underfoot, took what they wanted, and and kept going. You remember that it was the Midianites along with the uh, with the Ishmaelites that had sold Joseph into slavery, and, and along later with the Moabites, they're the ones that tried to get Balaam 
to compromise and to put a curse upon the children of Israel. So this is the source. It's amazing. And, and, you know, this is one of those things about God that's just beyond our ability to comprehend how that God will use a sinful nation in order to chastise his own people. But he does just that. You know, sometimes we think about America and we compare ourselves with the other nations and think to ourselves, you know, we're safe because we're much more of a Christian nation, let's say, than any of those over in the Middle East or, or whether Russia or wherever it is, you know, we're, we're, we're more godly than they are. God would never allow them to conquer us. But the fact of the matter is we are in far greater danger than those nations are. And I say that because unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And when we stop and think about what God has given us here in America, when we think about our heritage, when we think about the blessings that God has bestowed upon us and the way that God has used America to be a blessing to others throughout these centuries, and now for us to turn our back on God, Look, we're going to reap what we sow, and there's no way out of it, you see. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And America is in danger. And God overnight can raise up another nation to conquer us and oppress us. It happened to Israel. It can happen to us. Now, notice the severity of this here in verse 2 and on down through verse number 5. It says, verse 4, They encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. Now notice this went on for seven Years, The Israelites would plant their crops. Naturally, you know, they put out their garden and they're raising their cattle and all of these things. And about harvest time, well, all of a sudden here would, here would come the enemy against them and strip them of all of their goods. So all of their, all of their hard work was taken from them by other nations. Kind of reminds me of what the Bible says about that bag with a hole in it. Anybody ever read that? Yeah, a bag with a hole in it. When we turn against God, when we refuse to obey God, even though we reap a lot of benefits, it's just like putting gold in a bag with a hole in it. You don't have anything left after you've gathered it. And this is what's happening with them. They have all of this potential here, but it was meaningless because all of it was taken from them. Now, notice in verse number 6 here the effect that this oppression had upon them. It says, And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Well, finally, I mean, after seven long years... They finally get concerned enough that they begin to cry out to God. Now, you would have thought, based on history, based on what they had already observed and what they had already experienced, they would have thought at the very beginning in that first year that, folks, we are in trouble. 
And we have got to turn back to God immediately. But they didn't do it the first year, the second year, the third year, the fourth year. Seven long years they've gone through this cycle of losing all they have. And, and, you know, it's a mystery why people wait so long before they finally turn to God for help. And that's what we see here. Finally, it gets bad enough that they, you know, out of a sense of desperation, they turn to God. And we need to understand that nothing ever gets better until we get dissatisfied with it the way that it is and have a concern for the way that it ought to be. And there's so many times whenever our life is all out of sorts with God, and, and we're fine with that, you know. We're not dissatisfied. And it's just like trying to help an alcoholic. You can't help an alcoholic until they get to that point that they desperately want help. You can put them in every recovery program known to man, and it'll all be in vain. They've got to bottom out. They've got to hit rock bottom. They've got to get hurt. They've got to get to that point of desperation. But why in the world do we wait until we've lost everything we've got before we turn to God? And that's what's going on here. Seven long years. You might have thought, you might have thought, well, God is not a very caring Father. You might have thought that God has forever forsaken them. But that's not the case. Notice in verse number 7, we're still talking about the, the fearful call of Gideon. And I want you to notice there's this national crisis, but it also comes after the ministry of an unnamed prophet. Notice verse 7. Let's read down through verse number 10. It says, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Now, the strange thing about this is he doesn't give us a name of this prophet. He just says that it is a prophet here. And he is reminding them here that they were being punished because they had refused to obey God's Word and they're being afflicted as a result of it. Now, all of this is setting the stage for Gideon's ministry because they have tears in their eyes. They are hurting with pain as a result of the oppression. And this unknown preacher comes on the scene and reminds them as to the reason why they're in that condition. You know, had man been writing this book, I suspect that the, the name of that man might have been recorded. Certainly, if he had anything to do with it, he would have put it in there, you know. He you know, want everybody to know what a great man this was. He's a man that you could say sparked a revival. You know, the fact of the matter is, down through the centuries, there have been any number of of unknown, not just preachers, but unknown servants of the Lord that have stepped on the scene of the community or maybe even nationally and they fulfilled the role that God had for them and, and left this world. 
God used them without them ever seeking to make a name for themselves. And that's one of the problems today. Too many people wanting to make a name for themselves. They want to be famous. Back in, back in the old days, by old days, I'm talking about, you know, even a hundred years ago, most preachers back then would not even allow their photograph to be taken or not to be published at least because they thought it was an expression of, of pride on their part. And so they certainly would not write a book and, you know, have a book filled with pictures about their, their great ministry and things like that, which, which just tells us how the thinking of people has changed over the years. But here's a fellow that's an unknown prophet, and he comes on the scene, his little corner of the world there, and uh, does his job. We would be amazed if we knew who actually makes the greatest contribution to the Lord's work. You know, we preachers a lot of times get the credit. If the church is growing, we get the credit. If it's not, we get the blame. And, and it, it may or may not, you know, be our, our fault, you know, e- either way. But the fact of the matter is uh, there are a lot of times there are people that are working behind the scenes and people that, you know, they don't get their name in the telephone book. And if we send out a revival poster, their name's not on the revival poster. And, you know, nobody outside the church even knows who they are. And yet it's those kind of people, those faithful few, that make the biggest difference. So here we see this man playing a part in what is about to happen. Now look at verse 11, because we notice that this call comes at an unexpected time. Verse number 11, And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, and that pertaineth unto Joash, and the Abazarite, and his son Gideon, threshed wheat by the winepress, to hide it from the Midianites. Now remember, these seven long years have passed, and Gideon is hiding in fear at this point. Now, don't be too hard on him. I'm not too sure that you and I would not have been hiding also. I mean, look, he's he's trying, he's thrashing wheat. He's trying to he's trying to make provisions for his family, and he knows that the Midianites are going to take it. And so here he is in hiding, and and, and in their mind. It seems like they are doomed forever, but God is at work. They're looking back now over these seven years thinking all of our work has been futile. All of it has been in vain. We've gained nothing. We've lost everything we had. And, you know, whenever you've gone through an experience like that, automatically, you know, you don't have bright hopes for the future, right? I mean, you're basing everything about the future on on what's trending. Uh, Or you look back, you know, what is already happening. And and so this is where Gideon is. I, I mean, it looks like a hopeless case. And all of a sudden, at this unexpected time, God shows that he's at work because the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Now, notice verse number 12, because this call next comes with a startling announcement. Notice what he says, and this is shocking not only to us, but certainly was shocking to Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, notice the very first thing that God does is to assure him of his presence. The Lord 
is with thee. You know, sometimes it seems like God has forgotten us. There are times when it seems like the heavens are as brass, that we just can't break through. We can't get God's attention, that God has turned a deaf ear to us, that God is a thousand miles away. And it's a wonderful thing for us to be reminded of the fact, as Jesus said, I'll never leave thee, I'll never forsake thee. You'll remember when the Lord gave what we call the Great Commission, One of the things that he did is to assure them that as we work at carrying out the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. Isn't that wonderful to know that you can count on God's presence? And God wanted him to know that. And so he says, The Lord is with thee. And, you know, like somebody said, God plus one is always the majority. And so having assured him of his presence, notice that he then acknowledged his potential. He says, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Well, that almost sounds like a joke or mockery because Gideon is in hiding here. I mean, he has made no effort to marshal an army. He's made no effort that we know of that's on record to resist the enemy At this point, he is just as cowardly as everybody else. He is in hiding, and God calls him a mighty man of valor. I'm glad that God sees us for what we can be and not just what we are. And he says, you know, you are a mighty man of valor. What of the human eye, you know, we would see him as somebody that is worthless and somebody that is hopeless, no potential. But God sees what he can become. And we need to understand that, that, you know, when we surrender ourselves wholeheartedly unto the Lord... It's, look, it's never based upon our abilities. It's never based upon our worthiness. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Anytime somebody says, well, boy, you know, uh, God's called me to do this or that, and that's right down my alley. I'll, I'll never forget some years ago talking to a preacher and he, and you know, I'd met him before. I knew him just a little bit. In fact, in fact, many, many of you would know who I'm talking about, but he, he began to expound upon me the, the gifts that God has given him. And, and I, I mean, he was, uh, I don't know how to say it other than just full of himself. God's given me this gift and that gift, and I excel in this and I excel in that, you know. And he just went, <laughs> went on and on, and I thought this guy's never going to start Stop talking about himself, you know. Now, God does give us gifts. I, I, I recognize that. And, and, and I realize that sometimes, you know, we are aware of the particular gift that God has given us. But that ought to never become a, a, a point of pride in our life. Because God doesn't call us into his work because of our worthiness or our ability. God can take those that we never imagined as being usable material and use people like that greatly. I'll I'll tell you what, whoever you are here today, look, if you're willing to let God use you any way he wants to, he will. He will. He'll do just that if you're willing. So here, here we find that this startling announcement, God's saying to Gideon, 
I know what you can become. So if you're here and kind of sired on life and you, you just feel like, you know, that uh, I'll never amount to anything for God, well, stop trying to amount to something for God and just start doing what you know God wants you to do. If you'll just do that, all of a sudden you'll notice that God will begin to use you. Now, notice verse 13, because this call prompted some questions, as you might suspect. It says, And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all of this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto them, O my Lord, wherewith, uh, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Now notice, Gideon responds the same way I think any of us would, and that is what appears to be a complaint. He he says, Lord, if you're with us like you say, what's going on? Why are we being oppressed? Why are there no miracles happening in our life? All of our forefathers talk about all of the great miracles that you perform. Why aren't you doing something? And I don't care how much you love the Lord, you'll never get to that point in life where you understand all of the ways that God works. There's always going to be this confusion about why God does this and why God does that. And, you know, it's difficult for us to get beyond those why questions. Too many times we're trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to get out of something. We ought to be thinking what we're going to get out of it. It's not how you get out of it or when you get out of it. It's what you get out of it. And that's what God was doing with Job. And and that's what God is doing here with the children of Israel. As you you can see from what we've already said, there was a good reason for God letting this happen to them. Look, they didn't stand a chance. If God had just said, all right, you've made your decision. I'm going to allow you to sin successfully. I'm going to cause you to prosper, although you are sinning against me. They would have never turned to God. See, God knows a whole lot more about human nature than we do. And sometimes in order to help us, God's got to hurt us. And that's what's going on. But Gideon doesn't understand that. Uh, you know, he's thinking about being God's special people and thinking about God's love and so forth. And, and so it's not very difficult for us to see how Gideon might be confused. But notice that God is calling him what appears to do the impossible. There's not only that problem of him trying to understand what God is not doing, but also the fact that God says, I'm going to use you to deliver as one man, I'm going to use you to deliver the children of Israel from the Midianites. Boy, that surely seemed impossible to him. It seemed like more than he could do. You know, we need to learn to 
think big. You know, we need to stretch out our tent pegs, as it were, and increase the size of our tent, as William Carey uh, preached many years ago, enlarging the tent. And there's too many times that we're in the shackles of doubt, and, you know, we, we, we just don't foresee the, the great things that God could do and would do if we just trust Him. And, you know, we think about being here in, in this area and think about, you know, we put limitations on it. And, and generally, we reason something like this. Well, you know, we live in a day that if you really stand for what's right, if you really insist on using nothing but the King James Version of the Bible, you know, which we do, and if you really, you know, practice closed communion and church discipline and on and on and on, if we really... If we live strictly by the book and try to do what is right, that's not popular with people and you're never going to grow as a church. Well, you know, that might or that might not be true. But I don't think we ought to ever use that as justification for our failures. Because there's too many times we get to thinking if here's a Baptist church somewhere and they're growing and prospering, our first thought is, oh, they must be compromising somewhere. Well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're just working harder than we are. Maybe they're doing more, witnessing more, you see. So we need, we need to keep in mind that we serve a great God that's able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we could even ask or even think. And so that's what's going on here. God's saying to Gideon, he's calling him into the ministry of delivering this nation, and it seems like something that is impossible. So what does he do? He says, would you give me a sign? Well, let's notice what happens next because this call is confirmed by a sign beginning in verse number 18. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephrath of flour and flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him, under the oak, and presented it. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon the rock, and pour out the broth. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the flesh and unleavened cakes, and there arose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes, then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. You know, this is really amazing. In the first place, it's amazing because, notice, considering the difficulties they were going through, by the way, they didn't eat meat every day like we do here in America Back then, you know, meat was reserved for special occasions. But especially when you consider the oppression, I, I mean, this must, this must have been a rarity, you know, that they've got meat and they've got food, you know, and they've got, got the broth. And so it, it shows here a gracious gesture on his part that he wanted to give this messenger from God uh, all of this food, willing to give it up. When most people would have hoarded it, you see, he's willing to give it up. And, and then notice what happens whenever he exercises his faith, because he must have believed that, look, if I do this, God's going to take care of me anyway. 
You know, this is what I ought to do, so this is what I'm going to do. And if I do it, you know, yeah, you know, the food will all be gone, but that's okay. God's going to take care of it. That's what faith is. But notice it says, There rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. When he exercised his faith, you see, now remember he's asked for a sign from God that, you know, that this, this message is true. And, uh, and, and immediately God gives him this sign. I mean, fire doesn't ordinarily come out of rocks, right? But in this case it did. I'm glad that, the, you know, that the supernatural is natural with God. And in all of this, the amazing thing about it is, whenever you read this, Gideon does not take this or consider this to be a loss. You know, he doesn't say, oh, my, look what you've done. You've burned it all up. You've consumed it. It's ruined. Why, Why was such a waste made like this? He didn't look at it that way. He just understood that this was God's way of communicating with him and assuring him that he's going to be with him. And and there's too many times that we look at, you know, if we're really devoted to the Lord, whether it's in our giving, whether it's in our time or whatever it is, and we look at that as a loss. We think, oh my, you know, if, if, I, if I give so much over here, then, then I'm going to have less to use over here, you know, for my, my personal pleasures. Or if I devote so much time over here, that's going to take away from the time over there where I was going to do things that pleases me. And we, we begin to think of our, uh, our giving to God as losses when in reality it's great gain. And Gideon understood that. And that's one of the reasons why God could use him. Now, look at verse 22 because here's the last thing I want you to notice about the call. And, and if you remember, I, I said this section tonight deals with his fearful call. You know, and, and that's, that's exactly what I meant. This was a time of fear in his life. And it's not just the fear of the Midianites, but in God's dealing with him. And, and notice what happens, verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and, he, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is an opera of the Abizarites. Now, at this point he is emotionally overcome by what happens, I think we all would be. You know, just knowing that we've come in contact with an angel, a messenger of the Lord, you know, that alone would tend to move us emotionally. I'll never forget talking to someone years ago, and a man, by the way, that I that I had a lot of respect for. And he owned a grocery store, and he was talking to me about and he went through the whole story, and, you know, I can't remember it all, and I'm not going to try to go into the details. But, but he related to me an experience that, that some person had come into the store, and, and this guy was totally convinced that this man was actually an angel of the Lord. You know, my first thought was just to rule that out as poppycock or whatever. 
I don't even know if that's a good word to use in a church service or not, but but, uh, you know, a lot of times we just assume, well, nothing like that would ever happen. You know, we know the Bible says that, you know, be aware sometimes that we've entertained angels unaware. And we know that there's always the possibility of it. And by, and by the way, I don't think we ought to go around looking for angels and suspecting, you know, well, I think that guy was an angel of the Lord. But let's just suppose that God made it perfectly clear that all of a sudden some man appears to you and God lets you know this is really an angel. I hear people, you know, talk about wanting to see some sign or miracle from God. I've got to tell you, I really don't feel that way. I really don't. I mean, if angels just started fluttering down on feathery wings, I'd probably have a heart attack right here and die. I don't want to see anything like that. You can if you want to, I guess, but I'm not interested in that. But if I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that I was in the presence of an angel, I'll tell you what, it would stir my heart to realize that God has put me in touch personally with one of his, one of his messengers. And, and we, need, we need to be mindful of the fact that, that although God does not communicate with us exactly as he did with Gideon, and although we cannot depend upon seeing an angel, that God nevertheless does communicate with us. And it's just as real and just as valid, and He communicates with us through His Word. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't need anything more than that. I mean, if if, if the Bible says it, to me that just settles it right there. I don't need a sign or a confirmation. But the point is, everything at this at this point in Gideon's life is depending upon Gideon's attitude toward God's message and his his response to it. And the same thing is true of you and I tonight. It all depends upon our response to God's revelation. And in our case, that revelation comes from the Bible. We shouldn't need a sign from heaven, you know, assuring us of anything because right here we have everything that we need. And when God speaks to us, and by the way, you know, so many times we get the idea that, well, if I'm well versed in the Bible, I don't need to read the Bible every day because I already know about Joseph and Daniel and Samson and all of these people in the Bible. I know all of those stories and, and what people don't understand is, as you read the Word of God, I mean, this, look, this, this book is alive. It speaks to you. And God speaks to you through this. And when you lay this down and put it aside and you, you fail to, 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 you know, to feed on it day after day, then you're out of communication with God. And you'd be amazed at the things that you go through every single day of your life. And I realize there's not a, you know, a particular verse in here that says, you know, at 8 a.m. in the morning you're going to be confronted with a stranger at the door and, you know, and this is what you need to do. No, it doesn't give you that kind of information. But God speaks to us from His Word about the things that we're going to encounter in ways that through this we find instruction and principles 
and inspiration and the things that we need in order to be successful in the way that we live. I don't know about you, uh, you know, whenever I think about the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites and all of these other people like that, and I think about the problems in the world today, boy, if, if there wasn't another enemy in the world, you know, I've got enough problems trying to keep care of myself. And, and for me to just be able to conquer myself and to live successfully, that's a full-time job. I mean, that's going to take more than I'm able to do. I cannot possibly succeed in being the person that God wants me to be without His help. And so I don't want you to just think about the enemies that are out there. I want you to think about yourself as the enemy. Because in reality, that's what's going on. Israel became their own worst enemy in that they sinned against God, and God simply used these outside forces to exert pressure on them and to, and to hurt them in order to correct them, right? But the real problem was with them. And the same God that enabled Gideon to be victorious, that same God can enable you and I to live victoriously in this world. And even whenever it seems hopeless, when it seems like there's just no way that, that, that I'll ever be usable material in God's kingdom, I hope that tonight you'll leave here saying, you know, if God could use Gideon, He could use me. And He really can. And, and you just get in His Word and dig deep and let God speak to you and let God use you however He wants. And by the way, there are, going, there are going to be some times that whenever God is instructing you and leading you and directing you, there are going to be times that, that what God would have you to do might seem contrary to common sense. That happens to Gideon. You, we all know the story of Gideon and the 300, right? I mean, my, if you're going to go out against the Midianites, you know, you need more than that, right? No, no, not really. You just need to do it God's way. And that needs to be our attitude right there, that whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. It might not make sense, might not be popular, but it's the only way that's really going to work because he never fails. Let's stand together tonight. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your word that gives us the instruction and inspiration that, that we need. And Lord, whenever we think tonight about ancient Israel and we think about their great failure and uh, their unworthiness and, and yet how that you raised up someone to, to deliver them. And Lord, we just realize in light of that, that, that as hopeless as it seems in America sometimes, there really is hope. And help us, dear Lord, to hang on to that thread of hope and to realize that although in some way we have to reap what we've sown, no doubt about that, that, Lord, we know that it doesn't have to happen until another generation somewhere down the road. We have no idea what your plan is and when you might do it. But Lord, we do know that if we'll repent of our sins and turn to you with all of our heart, that things will be as good as they possibly could. And so help each one of us tonight, instead of living in fear, 
of the enemies out there, help us to examine our own hearts and to yield ourselves to your control that we might be made usable in your work. For we ask it in Jesus' name.